I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico. And I'm Dean Detloff. All right, folks, this week we've got a lot to talk about. Um, first of all, let me announce this. I'm in a new room, in a new space, so my voice might sound echoey, and I apologize if that is distracting to you. <laughs> but, you know, we're going to make it through this, and it'll be just fine. Um, okay, with that out of the way, <laughs> now we can get on to the episode. Um, so real Magnificast heads, all you OGs, all the real fans who've listened to some of the older episodes will remember a very old segment we did in the very early days called Pope News. That's right. We love it. (laughs) (laughs) We love this good Pope News. Um, And there's been a lot recently. Um, Well, Dean, do you want to talk about the the big Pope controversy, the big Catholic controversy in the United States? It has nothing really to do with the Pope, but it does have to do with the U.S. Council of Bishops. Yeah, man. I don't know. It's a... It's annoying. <laughs> if you if you're following it on Twitter or the internet or whatever, basically the bishops are debating whether or not they'll have a, a sort of mechanism to be able to bar people like Joe Biden or other people from uh, the Eucharist, and then they've kind of walked it back a bit to be like maybe it's something else. Uh, you know, it's all kind of up for grabs at this moment. But uh, it's I, I think it's not as interesting as people think. I don't know. It's just uh, it's just one issue voting determining what. Catholics will do in the United States. So you can chalk it up to that. Yeah, I agree. I have learned a little bit about it, and I also feel not very interested in it. Um, (laughs) It is one of those weird, like, culture war moments, I guess. But uh, let's talk about something that is not just about the culture war. Let's talk about the real war, the class war, if you will. The only just one out there. (laughs) That's right. That's right. So, um, like I mentioned, we're going to actually talk about some real Pope news, not just about the U.S. Council of Bishops or whatever, but we're going to talk about some things that Pope Francis actually said at a recent meeting of the ILO, which is the International Labor Organization. It's a big labor organization in uh, in Europe and uh, not so much in the United States, but there it is. Anyways, um, Joe Biden did speak at it, too, to kind of connect it all together, but <laughs> that's neither here nor there. Pope Francis did, and that's the really important thing. We'll get to all of the specific Pope Francis stuff in a minute. Um, we'll talk about you know like what he said and like why it's important and like whatever and blah blah blah. But uh, generally uh, speaking, he said some like really positive things about the dignity of labor and the right to organize, and that's pretty cool. The Pope wants you to have a union, and that's that's great. <laughs> that's what I like about him. 
So uh, if you're familiar with Pope Francis or with Catholic social teaching in general, you'll know that those kinds of sentiments about labor and organizing and unions and uh, that kind of stuff, they're not exactly new. Um, there's all kinds of historical precedents and other Catholic encyclicals and elsewhere uh, about unions and labor, but uh, Francis has um, been pretty good in um, advocating for uh, labor and unions, and uh, especially during the coronavirus pandemic, it's been a, a focus, I think, to say the least. Yeah, for sure. I One thing that I think has really characterized Francis's papacy is that although I think popes have a hard time with politics in general, what Francis has done is tried to shift some of the conversation, at least at the papal teaching level, to really lean into the idea that politics should be a, a popular and mass thing, but also that it should be organized and uh, leaning into unions as a major vector for that alongside like popular movements or social movements is, uh, I think, um, kind of like an understated piece of Francis's stuff. You know, Pope Francis has a lot of problems and that's fine. Uh, but one thing that is very cool is he does love labor unions and uh, he also like wants labor unions to be more militant. So he wants a greater uh, role for them in society. And he also wants them to discover a certain uh, radical side to them. So it's actually kind of neat. You know, he's not the the Marxist communist pope that Rush Limbaugh thought that he was. But uh, <laughs> he is, um, I think, making a, an intervention into the, the labor conversation that is actually really important for Marxists and Christians alike to kind of think that through. Yeah, that's right. So he's um, he's reiterating and stating strongly some of those uh, core beliefs from Catholic social teaching. And it's cool. We're here for it. I love it. <laughs> I love this pope. He's a good one, um, except when he's not. And then I don't love him, but that's OK. <laughs> Uh, I guess what's interesting about all of this, though, is that um, Catholic social teaching, as we've talked about in the past, is not perfect, and it does have some interesting uses, but also some very interesting abuses, um, especially when it comes out of the mouths of politicians. There are some like very interesting contradictions that you can start to see that have become very glaring. Um, most notably, in the U.S. at least, uh, there is a former presidential candidate and Republican senator from Florida that, that people probably know about. His name is Marco Rubio. And, uh, Little Marco, he is, as he's known. <laughs> That's what that's what they call him. That's what uh, the other the other former president, Donald Trump, uh, <laughs> did call him, I guess. What a world. Anyways. Yeah, I know. Uh, hard to believe that this is the one that we live in, but we do. There are so many that are possible, but this is the one that we have to live in right now. <laughs> well, anyways, um, Marco Rubio, uh, this senator from Florida, he's I don't know, I, apparently small. I couldn't I couldn't tell you, but he has uh, publicly shared his convictions and support. Uh, for labor based in Catholic social teaching, which is pretty fascinating, actually, uh, but also <laughs> really silly when you get down to it. Um, so you, you might you might recall some of this. It's a little bit of old news right now. We did the Pope news. It's new, but this is the old news about Marco Rubio. It's less <laughs> fresh. Uh, but during the height of the publicity around like the Amazon Union Drive, you know the one. Uh, Marco Rubio made a statement of support uh, for the workers from a place that draws on both right-wing politics and Catholic social teaching. So um, it, it's important to draw this kind of thing out because what you see is that, um, I mean, Catholic social teaching is really motivating to a lot of people on the left, lots of Christians, lots of Catholics. You know, uh, we'll talk about some of them a little bit later on. But um, it's really important to recognize that it's not just something that can motivate the left. It can also be... Um, used for right-wing ends too um, that end up being very silly but just the same it's out there and possible 
kind of showing, I guess the point is that um, Catholic social teaching within itself um, has some inherent contradictions that make it a very difficult thing to use, um, I don't know, as like an end-all and be-all political analysis or something. Mm-hmm. So in light of all of that, in this episode, we're going to take a look at the the ways that, uh, you know, the claim to the common good from within Catholic social teaching uh, can be deployed from the left, but also from the right. And, um, you know, why Catholic social teaching doesn't go far enough to resolve the tensions of capitalism. A lot, a lot to say and do, but uh, that's what we're all about in this podcast, doing and <laughs> saying a lot of things. Yep, it's true. Um, a couple things to maybe get on the table up front here. So, you know, we started out talking about Pope Francis and labor unions, and then we've kind of ended up here talking about the common good. Uh, that connection is very obvious to me in my brain, but it just occurs to me now that maybe it's not obvious outside of my brain. Um, and, uh, I think it's worth kind of drawing that out. Um, you know, the common good I think is a sort of nebulous term, right? If you ask most people, do you support the common good? People will probably say yes. Right. Even like libertarians think that at the end of the day, they're extremely bizarre, uh, way of looking at the world is ultimately a kind of backwards way into a common good philosophy or something you know you can find some particular egoists or whatever out there that probably intentionally don't do that but i think on the whole that's not really the case right and so the the point here i guess is common good is such a kind of um uh easily manipulable idea and concept uh i think just because it's part of our general vocabulary our our vernacular you know it's like it's a floating signifier it doesn't really point to anything uh super substantial or meaningful but uh i do think that while it's true that the catholic social teaching tradition doesn't resolve the contradictions of capital on its own it does have all these kind of weird pieces of it that kind of if you think them together can uh push you in a certain direction and historically have done so. So unions, for example, is one piece of it. Uh, The Catholic social teaching uh, kind of compendium, (laughs) the loose canon of it, if you will, uh, made up of papal encyclicals and other kinds of things. Um, That tradition is uh, very committed to the common good as kind of an ultimate uh, way of thinking. Uh, But it also sees, for example, labor unions as a necessary feature of that common good. And it sees labor unions in a particular way, um, not always the same way from, you know, whatever, the 1800s till now in the 21st century. Uh, But all that to say, uh, when someone like Marco Rubio is out there talking about labor unions and the common good, um, I do think that while Catholic social teaching makes itself available in ways that can be abused by people like Rubio, um, it is also true that Rubio is, uh, I don't know, too bad at reading <laughs> to <laughs> understand what he's really doing. And I think it's important to sort of give the tradition credit in that respect. So maybe what we're, we'll try to do, too, is pull out some of the ways that it can be kind of radicalized or you can lean into a, a part of it and sort of activate that on the left. Yeah, I think that's right. We'll definitely take a look at some of the the Marco Rubio points, and they are pretty funny <laughs> and i mean funny in the uh, on the face but then very sad in the sense that this is a person who is elected and has political power that's sad that's the sad <laughs> part anyways um let's talk about what pope francis said about unions first because i don't know it seems like a good place to start and we can kind of uh talk we can pull out the stuff about the common good and kind of as it comes out of there maybe yeah so, um, like i said he gave this uh recorded statement to the international labor organization 
And uh, yeah, he said he should have a union. Uh, this is what he said specifically, kind of started off, um, or at least moved to frame some of the um, the union sentiment that he gets at later on. He says, in 2020, we saw an unprecedented loss of employment all over the world. In our haste to return to greater economic activity at the end of COVID-19 threat, let us avoid excessive fixations on benefit, isolation, nationalism, blind consumerism, and denial of the clear evidence of discrimination against our, quote, dispensable brothers and sisters in our society. So um, this is kind of where it's coming from. Like, he said some other things about unions that we can talk about later, but this is like uh, the framing for the whole situation is COVID-19. And it's actually, I mean, pretty prescient. Uh, COVID is not over. It's still a problem. <laughs> not everyone's vaccinated, uh, despite everyone having to go back to work and different things like that. Uh, but this is uh, like the locus of uh, Francis's thought on labor at the moment is like um, throughout this pandemic, all kinds of things have happened um, for sure. A lot of people have lost their jobs and that's a huge problem for a lot of reasons, but also a lot of people's lives just had to be put on the line, kind of sacrifice to keep society going. Um, so um, let's ignore uh, let's ignore some of like the uh, the thinking that treats people as objects or mechanisms to use in an economic sense. And let's think about the ways that people uh, who have names and families uh, have been thought of as disposable. I think that's a pretty good place to start thinking about the common good and uh, for labor, because uh, I mean that's kind of what's at the base of it, right? If you think of people in um, in ways that are uh, mechanistic or economic. Um, or like people are tools in society for economic growth or whatever, you know, you end up dehumanizing them. You don't recognize like a society that would be good for them. You just recognize them as sort of cogs in a larger machine. So that's at least where Francis is starting. Yeah. And I think it's important to situate that against the backdrop of the loss of employment that he names right off the bat, right? That um, here he is speaking to uh, a big labor organization, starting off noting that a lot of people are out of work. And as people try to kind of get the economies going um, after a big slump or something like that, uh, the key is to do that in such a way that we don't just go back to uh, what we we're doing before. And I've appreciated that sentiment that Francis has carried all throughout the pandemic, actually, is he keeps saying uh, we should not want to have a return to normal or a return to what was happening before COVID. But on the contrary, we should see COVID as this kind of, you know, apocalyptic moment, really, or, or a reckoning or um, a kind of uh, thing that should prompt us to think differently. And when it comes to labor, I think uh, it's important to consider that as a big piece of this, too. How would we consider the dignity and worth of working people um, in the wake of something like COVID when lots of people are now struggling to find work or um, maybe, uh, as we talked about recently, uh, some people like business people are struggling to find people to work for them because they don't want to work for, uh, shitty wages or <laughs> in bad conditions. Um, I think the fact that Francis is sort of calling attention to, uh, mass unemployment and, uh, the fact that this is a crisis of labor is really significant too. That piece is also lost in the, uh, kind of international conversation. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, it's, uh, it's, there's an, there's a way that Pope Francis says this too that's very interesting. Like um, people in the United States are saying all kinds of religious leaders. Like um, I mean, like, like Reverend Barber in, in the Poor People's Campaign, he's been saying this kind of thing, and like labor unions say it. But uh, for the Pope to come out and say it too, to speak to the exact moment is pretty cool. Um, I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, speaking to that same that that thing you're just saying though about like you know what would it look like to treat people differently or or think of uh, COVID as a you know a revelation that tells you how bad things are. Uh, Francis has this to say next. 
Can I call him Francis? Can I call him by his first name? You can. Is you that can. A thing? Thank God. <laughs> All right. I was really worried for a second. <laughs> um, so he says this. On the contrary, let us look for solutions that will help us build a new future of work based on decent and dignified working conditions, originating in collective negotiation and promoting the common good, a phrase that will make work an essential component of our care for society and creation. In this sense, work is truly and essentially human. Okay, so this is um, starting to you start to see the, the turn, or at least how he's thinking about work as not um, as a function of like capitalism uh, necessarily, but like work as something that fulfills what it means to be human, which is a very a very different way of thinking about <laughs> work, um, not just like philosophically or theologically, but also like I don't know something deeper, right? Um, uh, that if we could think of work as something that is uh, uh, about not only making you know the subsistence that people need uh, but also thinking about how our work takes care of society and also how it uh, it might care for creation is a very interesting way and a different way to reframe the whole question of work or the productive relationships we might have it's definitely outside of the norm or the way of thinking in capitalism that's for sure um something that i've really appreciated is just like listening to people in the labor movement, um, especially like essential workers kind of frame their own work in this way. Um, it's been interesting. Like, um, recently, uh, there was a day of action around, uh, home care workers, uh, people who, uh, I mean like medical professionals who go into people's houses who, you know, uh, give them daily medical care of some type. And like, that is, I mean, without that type of work, like, people die, right? Like, it's just like, it's essential to everyone's lives in a very deeply and obvious way. Uh, I mean, but also the, the people that do that work are ridiculously underpaid. Um, a lot of times they don't have a union, all kinds of stuff, right? But um, I, I mean, you can see when you actually think about what that work does for society, you can see exactly what Francis is talking about. Like, um, we can reframe the narrative that we tell about work, and that is a really positive thing. Or, I mean, the same thing could be true about childcare, or like, I, I mean, even like working at a restaurant could be like that too. Um, you know, you're you're literally feeding your community, and you're making sure that people like have something to eat, which is um, a different way to think about uh, productive relationships and work relationships than like consumer and uh, producer. It's a lot of just a different way to think about it and frame it in general, and uh, maybe it would do us some good to think it and in, in that way as well. Yeah. I think, too, situating that in the context of capitalism and socialism is important because a lot of bosses will try to use that rhetoric to get people to accept conditions that they shouldn't, you know, like uh, like absolutely the rhetoric yeah. of, yeah, this this job is just meaningful to our community. And isn't it so great that you are in this role or like we're all family here right. and everything that you do, you know, staying late. We really appreciate it. Staying after uh, coming in early, all that kind of stuff. Um and it's wild that this becomes one more way of exploiting people, but it's also it's because there's a moment of truth in it that can be exploited. That work is essential to other people. Um, it's just that under capitalism, uh, the favors that you do <laughs> for your job or the simple job that you're hired to do uh, generates wealth for somebody who is not necessarily interested in the common good. Right. And uh if they were, they probably wouldn't be making, you know, several times your wage for uh, all the work that you're doing for them. Right. Um, I mean, it's it's yeah. good to draw out in that way, too, because like, you know, your your boss will say things like that. Right. You know, you're not doing this for the money. You're doing this right. because, you know, you, <laughs> you love the thing you do or you think that it's important or it's like valuable to other people or you're taking care of your community or other people. And that's true. 
and, and like you're I mean, it, it's true in some ways, like what your boss is saying. But the thing that makes it untrue is that your boss is willing to let you do that and like get paid very little yeah, while yeah. they make a ton. Right. I mean, the uh, if we were thinking if we're thinking the way that Francis wants us to, you know, the way that we should feel probably is like kind of ripped off. right? Like mm -hmm. if uh, if someone is doing that type of work that is actually good for society and takes care of people, but the CEO of that company or whatever is pocketing all the money, like we should feel completely ripped off. The person that is doing the actual work is not being compensated in the way that we would want them to be. And, you know, like you tell somebody that, uh, I don't know, a childcare worker or whatever, they take care of kids all day, which has uh, got to be one of the worst jobs I can imagine personally for myself, but <laughs> I'm very glad that other people do it and they're good at it, right? But like, you know, they make, um, you know, like 10 or $11 an hour. Like that's horrible. Nobody wants that. But but it happens because um, extremely rich capitalists uh, set it up that way. They, they make it like that, right? They make it so that people who do essential work end up being uh, the people who don't see the money for that essential work. Yeah. Uh, just to put a fine point on it. Um, one time I worked at a Christian bookstore when I was younger and uh <laughs> It was an extremely weird experience all around. Um, I still to this day feel positively about the people I worked with, even though I think it was a weird place to be. <laughs> so uh, I don't know. None of them listen to this podcast uh, for <laughs> pretty obvious reasons, I think. But nevertheless, um, I do actually genuinely uh, still have fond feelings toward them. But uh, I do also remember, though, like having work meetings super early in the morning and it would be like, you know, getting psyched up for for the big shift and we'd have a big moment of prayer and uh some of the rhetoric that went around from bosses but other employees too was like isn't it a cool thing that this church or excuse me this uh store provides like a service to to churches it's um, a great slip yeah. <laughs> it is a great slip um and i remember at that time thinking to myself like i don't know uh some of the things in the store are probably actually a net loss for churches like selling you know i don't know <laughs> Joel Osteen books or something. Um, and secondly, like I'm getting paid absolute garbage wages to like provide this essential service for all these good churches around here who are like ordering communion cups and yeah. whatever else. So, you know, it's like to me, that was kind of a, actually sort of a, a bit of a mo moment of awakening, I think, to the total commodification of everything under capitalism. But it's like, <laughs> you know, even your spiritual life can be sort of uh, sucked into this weird way of like occluding that at the end of the day, even though I still, you know, like a lot of those people as individuals or whatever, the structure itself was basically like literally, um, I don't know, let's get our spiritual energy together so that you can get paid a bad wage and barely afford yeah. your rent at home. Man, Christian books were suck. <laughs> That's how I feel. <laughs> Uh, I love yeah. having this uh, this feeling through your experience. It's great. <laughs> I'll tell you what. The weirdest thing in the world is having memories of like re shrink wrapping returned uh, CCM CDs in like the back. <laughs> that is probably the weirdest thing that I'll have ever done at the job. I think. <laughs> Were they returned because they're they're a little bit too raucous? Like this one's a little bit too. Uh, there's too much guitar in this one. Yeah, that's probably it. Yeah, this one's a little <laughs> a little too uh, edgy for my particular needs. <laughs> well. Um, okay, maybe barring the <laughs> barring barring the last part of this conversation, <laughs> uh, I think Pope Francis would largely agree with us uh, about the way we're thinking about labor and the way that we should reframe the way that we prioritize, uh, you know, compensation and dignity and things like that. So um, later on in the statement that he gave to the ILO, he says this: "We are called upon to prioritize our response to workers on the margins of the labor market who are still affected by the COVID nineteen pandemic." 
Uh, and then he goes on to say, low-skilled workers, day laborers, those who work illegally, migrant and refugee workers, those who carry out what is commonly referred to as dangerous, dirty, and degrading. Those are the people he thinks we should pay attention to. I want to quickly say that uh, the use of the phrase low-skilled workers sucks, and I think I'm going to write a letter to Pope Francis specifically to tell <laughs> yeah. him not to say that. I've never, I've never met a low-skilled worker in my entire yeah, life, yeah. but uh, you get what he means, though, right? People who are low-wage workers in, in jobs that are highly mechanized or something like that. But um, that's what he thinks we should direct our attention to, right? In, in the recovery post-COVID, um, you know, there's all this unemployment happening. There are people that are still working in unsafe conditions. There are people that, you know, could never stop going to work. Um, uh, you know, not just because of COVID, uh, but, you know, people who work in like, I, I'm thinking specifically of like farm workers, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they can't, they can't miss a shift. They can't miss a day on, on the farm, like picking stuff. Cause that would mean, um, you know, money that their family isn't getting. So anyways, these are the people that he thinks that we should sort of reorient, uh, society around. And I think there's a lot to say here about the common good, right? I mean, like, uh, people like farm workers, people who, uh, I don't know, give you food in some way, people who are part of that, that supply chain of food or the people who are part of the supply chain of uh, medical work and care work. Like these are people who like our society literally could not function without of. So if we're going to be people who are really like going to seek what is the common good, um, these are the people who have to like share in that common good. Um, there are people that you can't forget because if you do, you're in trouble. Well, I think that's the key too is the common good by definition of being common is only ever as good as its lowest denominator. You know, the person who's at the bottom is the measurement of whether or not the common good is really being sought. And it's pretty evident that it isn't (laughs) in capitalism Mm -hmm. Uh, because those people, you know, if you have to remind people to think about, I don't know, folks who are on the margins, then clearly uh, they're not being um, taken into account. Yeah, that's right. Well, one more step here in Francis's thoughts on like unions and the common good. This is from a different statement that he's made uh, a few years ago, but I want to kind of bring it out again because it's really unequivocal in the way that he talks about uh, unions. So this is uh, from an address that he gave to uh, an Italian confederation of unions. So like all of the unions in Italy. There you go. Anyway, so Francis says, there's no good society without a good union, and there's no good union that isn't reborn every day in the peripheries that doesn't transform the rejected stones of the economy into cornerstones. So um, I guess this kind of, I mean, everything we've we've read so far, it kind of frames the way that Francis thinks about the common good, the way he thinks about labor, and also the way that unions are good at promoting the common good um, in the way that they give workers some kind of semblance of power where they wouldn't have it otherwise. Or, you know, they would be ignored or um, exploited and abused. And unions give like a, at least a little bit of a foothold to, to fight back and to fight for some kind of dignity. Um, on the job they wouldn't have otherwise. So he- here we go. I mean, that's it, right? That's um, that's the common good uh, from Pope Francis, at least as it comes to, to unions. But uh, Dean, as I understand, the Catholic Church is a lot older than just Pope Francis. I, I'm just <laughs> learning this right now. <laughs> it's true. But, um, yeah, maybe you could talk a little bit about the common good in, in a more expansive way. Um, where Where's the idea come from? Where are some other like ways to think about it? Who else is talking about it in the Catholic Church? Yeah, I mean, it, it is an old idea. I think I would want to trace it back, um, at least in the Christian tradition, certainly to something like Acts, right? In Acts 2 and 4, the good communist verses of the Bible, where we get that model of primitive communism, or primitive is a bad word, early communism in Christianity. 
where uh, the community has all things in common and nobody, you know, keeps things for themselves. There's no private property. Um, things get distributed according to uh, needs rather than wants. And I think that's kind of the basis, at least for a, a Christian way of thinking about property and uh, who has rights to it and who doesn't and things like the common good that kind of you see that kind of radical pulse, I guess, show up in all kinds of places in the early church and then uh, on down the line. And you can find seeds of it also, uh, not just in the Christian scriptures, but in the Jewish Bible as well. And, you know, there's all kinds of texts in Deuteronomy and uh, especially the prophets and stuff, but things that are all about kind of equalizing what's going on in society. Uh, the Torah is full of stuff like that, like the Jubilee laws or whatever that kind of get people back um, in a, a kind of equilibrium state. So all that to say, there's a long kind of biblical tradition of it that gets filtered out through uh, the theological tradition. I think, I mean, there's like a thousand scholars who have tried to figure out, okay, if that's the case, then why is it that the Catholic Church also ended up being basically the the institution that baptizes things like, you know, uh, monarchies <laughs> or uh, aristocracies, right? Things that are very clearly not, um, I don't know, holding all things in common. And right. uh, it's probably too much to summarize here for now. <laughs> uh, but I will say that always there has been this kind of current of uh, a kind of radical opposition to that very stratification um within the Christian tradition that I think you see, you know, it gets talked about even in the doctors of the church. You can find support for it in Augustine and Aquinas and all kinds of other church fathers. So yeah, I'm not pointing to a lot of direct things, but I think that's just because it's kind of in the air. Um, one place, maybe we, we can get to this later, maybe after we talk about Marco Rubio, but <laughs> there's, um, there's a notion in Catholic teaching called uh, the universal destination of goods, which is kind of, the way that Catholicism squares um, the common good and property. So we can talk more about that in a minute, but that too is an idea that is extremely old. And uh, the Catholic tradition has this kind of, it's at odds with itself, I guess, in that respect. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, Catholicism, like everything else, it has all kinds of weird internal contradictions with itself and listen, they're fun. That's all I can say about it. There's, <laughs> there's a real good time to work through them all. Um, okay, cool. That's helpful. A helpful place to kind of uh, get started, I guess, with the common good. Um, I think that when people talk about Catholic social teaching, sometimes it becomes, um, you know, like a, a dog whistle on the left for like social justice stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, people say, yeah, people say common good or Catholic social teaching. And they're like, oh, nice. That's the good stuff within Catholicism. Um, and, you know, for good reason, because I think a lot of uh, Christians and Catholics on the left has, have found like, um, you know, a motivating source for their activism in Catholic social teaching and in, you know, chasing the common good and kind of working out these questions. Uh, I mean, our podcast is, you know, this all we talk about <laughs> are people doing just that, right? A better world um, through uh, social justice, through like socialism, through these types of movements um, and so on. Um but just like to name, I guess, one of them as an example, in case this is like the first episode anyone's ever listened to, which is, I mean, great. Welcome to the show. But <laughs> um, <laughs> like the Catholic Worker is a really good example of, uh, of a generally left organization and of Catholics and Christians who I think find some really radical ways to parse out what it means to chase the common good or what it means to do Catholic social teaching or something. 
Um, so in their aims and means on the Catholic Worker website, which I guess is authoritative, I don't really know, <laughs> probably is, <laughs> uh, they say this, that uh, that their motivating principle is a call to justice uh, based on a vision of society where the good of each member is bound to the good of the whole in the service of God, right? That's the common good, I think, uh, in a real good articulation of it from the Catholic Workers. If anyone knows it, I'm sure it's them. So it's hard to argue that the common good is a bad idea, right? It's just like it's the common good. <laughs> it's, it's a great thing. If the if the least if like the least of these in your society is uh, is um, you know if they if they have a, if they have an, a conception of the common good if they are cared for in a way um, then that's good, I guess. It's hard to argue with it. That's what I'm trying to say. And um, yet. Some people, <laughs> who we already talked about, Marco Rubio, have made a pretty good attempt at screwing it all up. So let's talk about Marco Rubio for a minute, Dean. What do you know about Marco Rubio? What do you want to say about him? Give me your hottest Marco Rubio take. Little Marco, he, um, <laughs> he he's, uh, what, what is there to say about him? He's a, a Catholic, Republican, uh, Latino politician and uh, Cuban uh, politician, and he makes all those parts of his identity politically available to him as they are convenient. Um, he quotes the Bible sometimes on Twitter. Um, so I know that about him. He's a he's not <laughs> You're a good, doing great. He's not a good one. He's not the hero of my particular uh, world of heroes and villains. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think there's been a lot of talk about Rubio in the last. Well, when he ran uh, against Trump, for sure. But before that, too, and especially just in the last few years, I think some people see Marco Rubio as a more thoughtful Republican or like a Republican with a, a deeper um, source for his worldview than, I don't know, Mitch McConnell or something, um, mm. which to be fair, probably hard not to have a deeper source of your worldview. <laughs> but uh, <That's> right. <laughs> I think, you know, one of the big things is Rubio has gone on the record saying that he, he wants to pivot to working class issues. He wants to draw from Catholic social teaching. And when he says those things, he can count on, I think, a, a sort of a group of watchers or uh, people who are observing politics and religion to report on that and give him a pat on the back for it and kind of take that in good faith. Um, whereas I think that, like I said at the beginning of the show, um, <laughs> Marco Rubio is uh, the two ways that you can think about it is either he's very cynical and kind of mobilizing something uh, to his own ends, knowingly doing that, or he's not good at reading stuff and uh i think either way you cash it out uh probably doesn't look good on rubio but all to say he's generated some buzz because of his willingness to kind of engage the catholic social teaching and, and he's roman catholic i don't know i don't know if i said that but he is which is <laughs> rare for republicans yeah that's right um before we go any further um i want to give you guys a little bit of a, a peek behind the curtain here of the magnificast one of the things that Dean and I do like to do for whatever dumb reason is uh, we do like to see how tall people are. And we've <laughs> said that Marco Rubio is little a few times on this podcast. And I do want to set the record straight that he's 5'9". So okay. he's not. I'm I about mean, as tall as little Marco. So <laughs> uh, I think uh, Donald Trump has it all wrong. He's just a regular sized person. He's fine. <laughs> it's okay. Um, there's a lot of better regular things size Rubio. <laughs> regular size Rubio. That's what we're going to call him from now on. Well, regular size Rubio, like you said, Dean, is uh, either bad at understanding Catholic social teaching uh, or cynically manipulating it to sort of uh, get some mileage out of it with Catholic supporters. I don't know, man. To me, <laughs> to me, it seems like the um, 
the worst way to mobilize support for you as a politician is to uh, try to appeal to like a very nuanced reading of uh, Catholic doctrine. But <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Uh, Catholics, uh, no offense, are nerds and uh, love this kind of thing. So maybe maybe it's going to work. Um, all right. So Marco Rubio, uh, regular says Rubio, as we're calling him now in this podcast. <laughs> he, like Dean said, a Republican senator. We knew all these things about him, um, all kinds of things. Uh, I mean, he's been in the limelight for a lot of different reasons. But um, maybe the most recent reason he's been, uh, he's had some publicity is because uh, during the recent union push at Amazon in Alabama, again, you know the one, we've talked about it a lot, um, regular size Rubio did come out on the side of workers, which is notable because basically no other Republican did. Um, I don't know, surprising. Uh, but there's a lot more to the story. Uh, there's a lot of reasons behind it. And it's not because he thinks capitalism is inherently exploitative or even that uh, workers deserve you know, some kind of dignity in the way that Pope Francis is talking about um, a minute ago. So uh, the reason that Marco Rubio thinks or the reason that Marco Rubio uh, is on the side of the workers is because he thinks that Amazon is too woke. <laughs> and that's pretty cool. That's a really fun reason to support workers. He uh, there's there's two takes that Marco Rubio has about workers. And one is one is more nuanced and and one is very silly. I mean, they're both silly in the end, but uh, one sounds sillier than the other. So I'm going to read you the first one. So this is from uh, an op-ed that he wrote for, uh, I think, like USA Today or something like that. Anyways, uh, he says this. When the conflict is between working Americans and a company whose leadership has decided to wage culture war against the working class, the choice is easy. I support the workers, and that's why I stand with those at Amazon's Bessemer Warehouse today. <laughs> so <laughs> this is, I mean, a really goofy thing to say. Not only, I mean, okay, it's not just goofy, but it's also just like... <laughs> very very in the dark about why people might be trying to win a union um people at amazon uh people in the warehouse they probably don't care about amazon's uh woke woke values they probably don't care about the culture war they probably care about getting paid and like not having to go pee in a bottle um so they don't get like a you know time deducted or whatever um but this is where marco rubio's brain is is uh is on the culture war and not on the class war yeah, he goes on to say in that same thing, uh, something that's amazing. He says, uh, it's no fault of Amazon's workers if they feel the only option available to protect themselves against bad faith is to form a union. Today, it might be workplace conditions, but tomorrow, it might be a requirement that the workers embrace management's latest woke human resources fad, which... I love it. In his defense, there are a lot of very bad woke human resources fads, um, yeah. but uh, probably not the ones that Rubio is aware of. Well, okay, let's take one of Amazon's recent woke uh, human resources fads. So I don't know if y'all have seen this or not. I feel like Jay Leno, you seen this thing? Um, <laughs> but this podcast Amazon... has just kind of turned into headlines, so I think it's fine. <laughs> it's true. We are just we, we are reading headlines tonight. That's fine. Uh, so Amazon does have like a uh, a sort of mental health closet you can go into. Uh, <laughs> Amazon, so yeah, Amazon. That's right. Um, so if you're feeling too stressed out at work, you can go into the Amazon mental health closet. It's not called the mental health closet, but I think that's a better <laughs> name. And you can like look at a computer with like breathing exercises and soothing music and like just kind of center yourself. Um, but like, OK, that is <laughs> that is a woke HR fad, but it is one that does cover over the um, unacceptable 
nature of the Amazon warehouse environment. Like it's distracting you from <laughs> it's trying to like assuage something that it's it is not assuaging. Like um, you know, the Amazon warehouse, it's uh it's stressful. There's always a time crunch. But like really what people need are like longer bathroom breaks, not <laughs> not the mental health closet. Yeah, you have to imagine too what Rubio has in mind is like Amazon saying Black Lives Matter, which to be fair is annoying because Amazon doesn't care about black right. people. But uh, not for the reason that Rubio thinks. And the fact that he says this about uh, the Bessemer warehouse specifically is so bonkers because, like, Mm -hmm. you know, everybody who worked in that warehouse basically is black. And Bessemer is like a very majority black uh, part of Alabama. And it's like wild to be like, (laughs) yeah, these workers um, today, it's working conditions. But tomorrow, maybe maybe all these uh, workers at Bessemer's warehouse are going to be upset about Amazon Zoo's Black Lives Matter initiative, which... (laughs) I don't think so, Marco. <laughs> yeah, I think you probably are a little out of touch with working class values yourself. <laughs> That's true. Um, I mean, the thing about politicians that I think people sometimes don't recognize is they probably not talk to a regular person. In years. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So that's part of Marco. Rub- that's Marco Rubio's very crass and silly take. Um, but uh, elsewhere, Marco Rubio is a little bit more subtle, a little bit more, uh, a little bit more statesmanly, I guess. So in an, another op-ed that he wrote for uh, The Atlantic, um, but he wrote it um, a bit ago. I think he wrote it in 2018. Let me just double-check this real quick. Yep. Okay, so in The Atlantic, he wrote an article in 2018. So this is before the the Amazon warehouse. This is before uh, woke culture was as big of a concern for <laughs> Republicans or you know, culture war was just framed in a different sort of way. So this is what Marco Rubio said, said back then. At its core... The American dream is about the opportunity to earn happiness. The kind of happiness is only made possible for most Americans by the dignity of work. If we do not rediscover and embrace that simple truth soon, low-paid rootlessness will be the future of work and our nation will suffer for it. So this statement that Marco Rubio says here is right. He's not, it's, it's true. I mean, um, some some rhetorical choices I definitely would not make about like earning happiness. That's kind of stupid. But anyways, the thing he says like, uh um, about the dignity of work, maybe maybe something true, and unless somebody figures out some way to uh, change the embrace of uh, low-paid rootlessness, yeah, I mean, that will be the future of work. We've seen uh, the evolution of what people call the gig economy and so on, and that's true. But when it comes down to it, Rubio's vision of the common good isn't really much of anything. Like, when he kind of gets into the weeds about, like, what he thinks he should do or what society should look like, that, you know, what, what would a society that does embrace the common good over uh, low-paid rootlessness, what would it look like? It's nothing. It's nothing at the bottom. <laughs> um, so instead of, like, investing in some kind of, like, uh, you know, like, personalism, like the Catholic worker does or some type of, I don't know, other social justice-oriented view, he just finds a very... <laughs> I'm gonna tell you in a minute, Dean, and you're gonna you're gonna not like it. He <laughs> finds a very weird bureaucratic way to get <laughs> that he just thinks that the bourgeoisie, the people who own, you know, Amazon, the Jeff Bezos of the world, mm-hmm. what they should do to promote the common good is to simply take their profits and reinvest them in their workers rather than just doing like stock buybacks. Mm-hmm. So this is what he says. This is in the 2018 article. So again, it's like um it's kind of harping on some old legislation that nobody remembers or cares about anymore. But he said this. Um This is why in our 2015 tax plan, Senator Mike Lee of Utah and I argued that the top priority of tax reform should be encouraging capital investment. And that is why I will soon introduce a plan to expand and make permanent the full expensing provisions from last year's tax tax law effort (laughs) and end the tax code's favoritism for companies that spend their tax cuts on stock buybacks. Okay. 
This is like a sort of like a galaxy brain take about about what the common common good might be. So what Marco Rubio is saying is that like if we want to promote the common good, what we should do is find ways to get the CEOs of corporations, people who have billions of dollars, um, to reinvest that money in their business and in their workers. And okay, um, to give him a little bit of credit, would it be some kind of good, like a very limited good? <laughs> For corporations to use their profits to raise wages and to make like the workplace better. Yeah, it would be great. That would be a, a marginally good thing. Is that what corporations would actually do? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, they wouldn't. I mean, regardless of what the tax law is, I mean, it doesn't matter. We already know that corporations are, are barely, if at all, paying taxes. Um, and uh, billionaires, definitely not. <laughs> definitely not paying those taxes. I mean, the whole primary operating logic for capitalism is expansion and growth. It's not reinvesting that money in workers. It might be reinvesting that money in the production process, like that might be the case, but whatever. Um, uh, real real capitalist innovation is not something that you see a whole lot of outside of uh, um, finding more expeditious ways to expropriate labor from workers. So like investing in workers <laughs> just like doesn't do what capitalism, you know, does. It, it, it uh, does the opposite, in fact. It spends money where you don't really need to spend money if you're a CEO. While Marco Rubio does have a very limited idea of what could be good, like what could be a common good, um, it's also like not workable because it goes against the entire logic of capitalism while still being capitalist. And also, um, if it did actually work, it would be a super limited scope. It's a pretty bonkers way to think about the common good, I think. Yeah, I mean, he also... Even beyond just these op-eds, he has explicitly drawn on Catholic social teaching in a few places, one at a speech at Wiki University, I think, and then one in a piece of writing for some kind of business journal or something. I, I can't remember where. Um, but I remember the one thing that does stick out to me is the phrase he used a lot was common good capitalism. And I think maybe this is a good way to start pivoting uh, toward um, common good rhetoric, because the fact is capitalism is by definition not capable of uh, having a, a common good in mind. I mean, you were just That's mentioning, right. you know, it's structurally uh, uh, expropriative of or an exploitative of workers rather than investing in them. That's one piece for sure. Uh, it also can only function if you cut off or kind of parcel out parts of what is common in creation into the private, you know, ownership of other kinds of people. So, like, by definition, capitalism is is not a common good system. It, it has no interest in the common good except insofar as it needs workers and it needs consumers. That is mm -hmm. basically it. Actually, uh, this is like a wild tangent, but um, Engels, uh, if you ever want to read a wild, Engels is very underread, I think. He has a lot of really fun stuff, and I'm pretty sure it's in The Condition of the Working Classes in England, or maybe it's in The Housing Question. It must be in The Housing Question. Uh, there's a, a really wild part where Engels is like talking about why um, workers need to be paid enough to afford rent. And uh, the logic is like, well, uh, capitalists know that they do have to keep their working class alive or else they would have to do the work. So they're like willing to pay workers and they recognize as a necessary expense the need to pay workers enough to afford housing, um, but not enough to give them good housing because there's also like a revolving door of workers always trying to come in and get a job at your factory. So Engels is like literally uh, the capitalist classes relation to working people is like 
how can I give these people just enough money so that they don't like die in the factory before I can replace them? Um, which is, you know, an extremely brutal way of thinking about it, but like was true in the 1800s and is still true today in lots of places and, and would be true even more so in a place like the United States if it weren't for uh, the extremely paltry minimum wage uh, things that we have or legislations around, I don't know, certain kinds of housing uh, uh, protections, which are basically non-existent, but some nevertheless. Uh, all that to say... Um, by definition or structurally as it stands, capitalism is not able to be a common good economic philosophy because the moment a capitalist starts thinking about the common good, uh, they lose a certain competitive edge and, uh, you know, they, they fail in the, the race in the market. So it, it's all, all that to say, um, the common good is so frustrating because people like Rubio can just say it and then people will write essays about how great that is that he's saying yeah. that. Um, but it does have a certain radical, uh, component or interpretation. And I think that we should rescue that piece of it. Yeah, it's true. I think we've talked a lot about how capitalism is incapable of the common good. Um, well, listen, let me include one more thing in capitalism. Unemployment is necessary. Like that's how capitalism works. Like you can't have it without some people not having jobs because I mean, there won't be a perfect, um, there won't be a perfect, uh, balance of people with jobs and people needing jobs there's always going to be some kind of like you know it's a it's a market it's like sort of unregulated so uh, i mean like you can't have a society that has a common good if some people like um are on the outskirts of it right if some people can't be employed for different reasons um not even just because of the labor market because of but because of like you know incarceration and things like that so anyways all that to say capitalism is also like uh there can't be a common good because uh of unemployment there's a there's a whole a whole situation there too uh even in terms of the unemployment thing as well it's also one of the biggest uh ways that capitalists can threaten you right that uh you if unemployment rates are really low in a society uh capitalist economists freak out about that because it means that uh working people will probably start to kind of get a bit of a backbone and historically, it is true when there are higher levels of employment, union density is easier to get um, when a, when unemployment is higher, you know, it can reach unsafe levels for uh, capitalist economies, too. And then you kind of bring yourself out. But when it uh, is higher, it's actually in favor of the boss, because if you can be threatened to, you know, just lose this employee because, you know, there's another one who will take the job. That's a great situation for you as a, a boss and a very bad situation for you as a worker, because you know that you have to hold on to your job because there aren't enough going around or something. So it is, you know, it, it functions on this kind of like horrific carousel of like survival, yeah. uh, which is really disgusting. Yeah, lots of uh, lots of stick, not much carrot in this uh, in this carousel that we're all on of capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, sorry. Uh, let's let's now true truly fully pivot to talking about <laughs> maybe a different way to think about uh the common or uh common good um man there are a lot of different ways to do it you know when we first started talking about this i was immediately uh, uh drawn into thinking about something that richard gilmopolsky someone who we've had in the show before wrote um in a previous book of his called precarious communism and uh he talks a lot about um the uh, about the logic of communism in that book like um, you know, if, like I said a minute ago, right, like the logic of capitalism is about um, growth uh, and uh, and production and like kind of reaching further and further out. Um, if, if capitalism is all about expansion, like, well, what would the 
logic uh, underlying communism be? And uh, in that book, Richard writes that uh, the underlying logic of communism is the protection and the investment in the commons um, between people. So it's uh, not necessarily about about growth, but it is about making sure the things that people hold in common, like things like uh, you know food and a place to live and healthcare and so on, like those things um, actually do exist. Uh, so the defense of the commons is uh, at least what what Richard thinks of as the starting point of communism. Um, and if that's the case, I mean, I think that uh, there's there's a lot of common ground there then between Christians and socialists, people who are uh, invested in the common good, right? You have to uh, you have to recognize that that's the starting point for a lot of the conversations when it comes to justice from both perspectives. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's a good way of framing it, too, because when I usually introduce communism, I tend to say, look, forget everything you know about communism. The only thing you have to think about is uh, who owns the means of production. And I try to do that as a way of maybe simplifying uh, the conversation to kind of get at the issue of, of working people and, you know, what are workers entitled to. But uh, I like that starting point better of being like, well, it's about a defense of the commons or a kind of it's rooted in, in a commitment to the fact that people do have things in common and, and should. Uh, I, I think that's a good way of framing it. Um, it's also one of the forms of logic that you see crop up over and over in Christian expressions of communism, even in the very beginning of the kind of opening salvos of capitalism. Um, we've talked about this person on the show in the past, but uh, Gerard Winstanley, um, who was a, an English uh, radical reformer, he went around with these other folks called the True Levelers, uh, and they were with some other people in kind of the Radical Reformation in England. Um, and they were called uh, the True Levelers because uh, in that particular moment in England's history, it was kind of the burgeoning of capitalism. And what had happened was there were previously these things called the commons in England, uh, which were sort of like big areas and spaces that people used for all kinds of stuff together. Uh, communally, and uh, rich aristocrats decided to start building fences on that land and enclosing it in this process called enclosure. Marx talks about it in Capital, but lots of other historians do too. And uh, as they built these fences, they would then get, you know, the government to sort of uh, enforce that this is now their private property. And uh, as they were doing that, people like when Stanley went around and leveled these fences, hence the name uh, True Levelers, and uh, it's awesome because the logic of it is basically uh, you cannot enclose or sort of set apart uh, the creation that is given to all people. Uh, and so that's the sort of radical pulse of even the, the very earliest Christian opposition to capitalism is that, well, God gave creation to everybody. And like, who are you to take a little bit for yourself and not let anybody else use it? Yeah, the uh, man. Uh, George Win Stanley, the True Levelers, uh, one interesting moment. <laughs> it it is uh you know uh, you were saying earlier, Dean, that like uh, isn't it kind of like ironic that the uh, the Catholic Church, uh, you know, the inheritors of of um, like a story like Acts or something, they become the people who endorse um, monarchies and uh, baptize all kinds of like awful types of economic systems. But at the same time, Jardwin Stanley's out here <laughs> living his best life, knocking <laughs> right. down fences and being like, well, this is what the Bible tells me to do. <laughs> Pretty cool. Um, Christianity contains multitudes, then that's great. Um, <laughs> probably the only redeeming thing about it. Honestly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you see that also in lots of other places, especially during the Reformation, like Thomas Munzer. 
yeah. in his, you know, the records we have, I guess, uh, such as they are of his uh, so-called confession before he was killed. Um, he also appeals to omniscient communia, right? All things in common, that that's the, the kind of driver behind leading the peasant rebellion in Germany that he did. Um, Munzer, if you're not familiar with him, was like a radical Anabaptist, um, one that contemporary Anabaptists uh, sometimes like to distance themselves from because of their own <laughs> pacifism, but, uh, and, you know, rightly so, I guess, on their part. But uh, in any case, uh, Munzer himself had kind of the same logic as Win Stanley, right? That uh, God gave creation to everybody. And who are these princes in Germany to say that the peasants can't just have, you know, what's rightfully theirs, which is to say creation. Uh, you get that same thing, even in people like James Connolly, right? His sort of famous thing uh, that our, our number one or our only demand is uh, to uh, own all the earth, right? <laughs> There's this kind of appeal to universality that comes out in these Christian uh, left or proto-left people, uh, left Connolly being a, a Marxist and proto-left, these other folks. Um, yeah. But I think uh, all that to say... Um, that thing you brought up about uh, Richard and this kind of defense of the commons, I think Christians should a actually be able to kind of recover and be proud of that tradition as well, that while some Christians were working overtime to like create private property, uh, other Christians were like, actually, you cannot do that because, uh, you know, the Bible tells me so. Yeah. Well, let me give you a little bit of flavor text here from Gerard Wynn Stanley to, to give you, to give you and the listeners. I mean, you know, Dean, I guess just, just for the <laughs> listeners, just to give the listeners a little, a I like that good about... flavor. Yeah, uh, what's what's the Gerard Wynn Stanley flavor? Uh, so this is from uh, a quote from the true level, the true leveler standard. Um, he says this: "The earth, which was made to be a common treasury of relief for all, both beasts and men, sort of written in a, an old timey way, but uh, you gotta <laughs> love it. <laughs> the earth, which was made to be a common treasury of relief for both beasts and men." was hedged into enclosures by teachers and rulers and the others were made servants and slaves. And that earth that is within this creation made a common storehouse for all is bought and sold and kept in the hands of a few whereby the great creator is mightily dishonored. And if he, okay, first of all, we know God's a girl. It's okay. God's <laughs> a woman. We're going to say, we're going to, but we'll keep with Jordan Stanley's uh, gendered pronouns. As if he were a respecter of persons, delighting in the comfortable livelihoods of some and rejoicing in the miserable poverty and straits of others. From the beginning, it was not so. So, I mean, um, Jordan Stanley's, uh, I mean, like, I guess, ideas about the commons, theory about the earth, um, cosmology even, it is, it is a far cry from the immortal science of Marxism-Leninism. But uh, it's still good in an, a really important way. Um, it takes seriously the Bible, and it does actually kind of find a real easy logic in it. Um, in in Genesis, uh, God, uh, a woman, does give the earth dominion, like uh, people, um, dominion over the earth to kind of like cultivate it and keep it and take care of it. Um, and Jordan Stanley's like, yeah, <laughs> so like we probably shouldn't <laughs> just uh, parcel it out and give like all of it to some people and none of it to other people. That doesn't make any sense. And uh, Jordan Stanley's right. Hot take, but I think I agree. Um, as we're kind of getting at the end here, I want to deliver on one promise I made earlier, which is to return to that idea of the universal destination of goods. Um, so we started this conversation talking about property and, and labor unions and the common good and Pope Francis. 
And I think it is actually helpful to kind of think of this piece of Catholic social teaching as a very radical moment and an activating moment. And it's one that shares a kind of similar logic to what we were just talking about with Win Stanley. Um, it's said differently, but I think you can see kind of the uh, resonance at least. So Pope Francis has kind of drawn on this a lot in his papacy, but um, I want to make it clear that it's not even just like this is a Pope Francis thing. I mean, Matt, you were saying what else is going on in the Catholic Church. Uh, this comes right out of the catechism of the church. Uh, there's a whole section in there on the universal destination of goods. And in the catechism, one section says the right to private property acquired or received in a just way does not do away with the original gift of the earth to the whole of humankind. The universal destination of goods remains primordial even if the promotion of the common good requires respect for the right to private property and its exercise. Now, that kind of like base contradiction in uh, how Catholics think, I think, has created a lot of confusion. But it's also important that if you read it with a certain um, communist tinge, <laughs> whether the church wants you to do that or not, um, I think you can actually see that this is also exactly what Marx and Engels call for in the Communist Manifesto, quite frankly. I mean... Marx is not against uh, private property in a qualified sense. Um, in some Marxist literature, it's sort of described as the difference between personal property and private property. Um, but in any case, uh, uh, the point being, there's there's actually like a really complicated thing about property in Marx. Um, but all that to say, in the Catholic tradition, the point is that even if you have private property, even if you got it justly, even if it's, you know, you somehow managed to... Uh, acquire it in a just way, which, by the way, I think is basically impossible in capitalism. But let's say you did it. Uh, <laughs> you somehow got the miracle. Um, even still, uh, all that property would be subordinate to the universal destination of goods, which is another way of saying the common good. Uh, the The ultimate destination of goods is to be used for the sake of the enrichment of all people in, you know, the catechism of the Catholic Church. And Francis in particular has really seized on this. Uh, in Fratelli Tutti, for example, he has um, a kind of like necessary section on business and why business is important or whatever. And he ends the section saying the right to private property is always accompanied by the primary and prior principle of the subordination of all private property to the universal destination of the earth's goods and thus the right of all to their use. Um, and again, you know, it's, it's like Marco Rubio does not want this <laughs> like yeah. he is not invested in it he's not trying to build a world where this is the case and i think people need to give up on the dream of converting him and other republicans to some vision of catholic social teaching and democrats for that matter too i think you know we mentioned the usccb stuff earlier uh one of the most annoying pieces of that has been also liberal catholics rushing to defend biden as though he's like I don't know, some model Catholic in the world doing everything right. Uh, Biden also is not invested in this vision, right? <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, my hottest take, I guess, is uh, I do think that you have to envision a communist kind of politics if you want to even deliver on the basic premises that the Catholic tradition is trying to uh, instill. Sometimes I think papal documents are even a little bit aware of that. Um, Francis seems to kind of push that in some directions, although he's never going to say you should be a communist. <laughs> but uh, I think for those of us that do find ourselves thinking about political economy and so on, uh, we can maybe help the Catholic tradition out and square that circle a little bit. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, there's a lot of resonance to these two ways of thinking, right? Like 
the thing i mean what's in the catechism of the catholic church about the the destination of goods um as being not private property is good but i mean if you want to get it done you need a you, you need a, a program you need you need a, a way to get there and an analysis to do it i mean it, it makes a lot of sense that uh you know you can make uh you can make this type of um view i mean it's a cosmology at its base right it's an idea about how the universe works and like where it's going um but it makes a lot of sense that you could kind of pair that with uh socialist politics it just seems like those two things could go together very well and it's not really much of a contradiction at all um man well there you go um socialism communism these things they're about the defense of the commons um and uh so is catholicism surprisingly enough (laughs) Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, even more than saying there's an affinity between these things, I guess I'd put it even more strongly to say you just cannot deliver on the promises that Catholicism and other forms of Christianity want to make in a capitalist society. There is no way in capitalism to do this, to pull it off, to say that uh, the right to private property is always subordinate to the universal destination of goods. If you followed that teaching, you would go out of business 100%. You would not be able to be profitable. You would not have a good business, um, at least in terms of being like an individual, uh, you know, boss or CEO or a person on a, a, a corporate board or whatever. Uh, the fact is you you cannot be Jeff Bezos and follow this principle. And, uh, you know, it, it's important to sort of think very carefully about how much we really believe in these things. And it, for me, it's like, you know, socialism, communism, they name the way of resolving this contradiction. And uh, yeah, you just can't pull it off under capitalism. Well, you heard it here, folks. This is the Magnificast Guide to Running a Good Business. It's one page <laughs> long and it says, eat my shorts, capitalists. And that's it. Um, you can't you can't do these things. You can't square the circle. Yeah, it's such an interesting way of going about it. You know, there's this whole other angle of it, too. I mean, while we still have a few minutes of the podcast left, um, Oh shit! We actually don't. <laughs> we do. We have all the time in the world. It's I guess that's true. No one's no one's stopping us. Um, okay, well, let's talk about this really quickly before we kind of end end the podcast. There's one more aspect though of the way that Pope Francis talks about the common good, and, and especially with regards to labor. Maybe this will actually help us bring the whole point around from private property. Um, but the the way that Pope Francis talks about labor and work and dignity, I think, are actually really compelling. Um, in I mean, not that socialism or like the the labor movement lacks or something, but I think that there's something to it that's really interesting that like um, Pope Francis wants us to think of workers um, not as primarily economic actors, but like as people first and foremost. And that's something I can mm-hmm. really appreciate. Um, Marxists do this too, but in like a different way. Um, maybe in the Catholic church you'd call it like a uh, philosophy of, of personalism or something like that. But uh, in uh you know, in, in Marxism, we talk about things like species being or something, right? Like your uh, humans are are uh, tricked into thinking that they're primarily uh, coal miners, that they're primarily, um, I don't know, IT professionals, that they're business people. You're tricked into thinking that. That's, um, that is a, an assignment that you get from capitalism because it assigns your entire, you know, humanly worth as, uh, as an economic producer of something. Um, and you forget that actually you are a part of a, <laughs> you're a part of a community of people that uh, requires things to survive. Um, and uh, that clouding of your own judgment, um, you know, it makes you forget the integral connection you have towards people and also the world. Uh, and Pope Francis at least uh, gives us a language to talk about that. that I think is really um, 
interesting and helpful um, that uh, socialism, like you said, Dean, I mean, it's about the means of production, but there's a larger, a larger goal there. And it's about recognizing uh, humans as not just like, I don't know, uh, people who are supposed to be um, creating, I don't know, whatever it is they're creating, but they're people that have uh, uh, needs and uh, relationships and all kinds of other things too. And uh, I appreciate that reorientation, uh, the the existential philosophy that we really need, that people actually just need stuff to survive and we should like work work around that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's also a good just point of affinity too with the common situation because, you know, one thing I've appreciated about the communist tradition as well is that there is this assumption that human beings, you know, may not be totally reducible to being the mere like reflections of their economies that they live in. But like economies and the worlds that we kind of move through every single day, the patterns and habits that we're forced to adopt, they do shape the kinds of people that we are. Right. And there is this kind of deep spirituality to Marxism, too. Maybe that isn't the right word indigenous to a a Marxist way of thinking. But I think, uh, you know, you think about like something like Che's essay on creating the new human being in Cuba. Um, or even like uh, Fry Beto, as we've talked about on the show in the past, the liberation theologian reflecting that in Cuba, there's this kind of spiritual discipline that's required on the part of the citizens in order to displace your own uh, personal kind of gain and accept that while well, I am part of a, a common project, uh, a common good, if you will. And I think that's really significant, too, to say that investing in the common good is also a way of uh, trying to become better people, (laughs) like the kinds of people that are, um, you know, motivated by each other and not just by ourselves. And I think that's an essential piece to it, that if you do figure out the common good side of it, you're also going to end up hopefully um, being better and having better neighbors. Okay, now now that's an end to a podcast if I've ever heard one. (laughs) I'd say so. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. Our intro music is by Amari Armstrong. Our outro music is by The Logical Spoon. And uh, we'll see you next time. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church We'll meet down by the riverside There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam Between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up Keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late, oh don't mind, a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon, so come on now, it's still early, at least I would have.